Sorry? How are we introing? Uh, okay. I guess this is the first one, right? So this is the first attempt at a Hayfilly podcast and I actually don't know what the hell we're doing. So... <laughs> cool. That's the so, intro. <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, maybe we can just chat about a little bit about what we want it to be. Like, what do we want the goals of this podcast to be? So initially, in my limited capacity thought of this as a way for us to kind of pull back the curtain a bit on the software business in general cool to reflect upon our business specifically and kind of see what are the challenges that we face potentially we can share some of that learnings maybe it's cathartic for us just to explore just verbalizing these things in some shape yeah. or form yeah yeah for, um, for me it was when i did that case study in all the seniors last year and just having those prolonged extended conversations where you really flesh out certain things you can go deeper than just a five minute conversation here and there um i really learned a lot from that so that's when i kind of got this onto my radar of wanting to chat to various people about different topics and yeah guy and i kind of came to this conclusion of how we see it yeah and i don't know what it's going to turn into so we're going to give it a try for maybe six or seven sessions and then see where we land maybe it's something we continue with and yeah, I think it's as uh, as a different platform for us because I can do a leadership talk. Or we Sorry, can... who are you? <laughs> yeah, I can... this is Alan interjecting <laughs> here. We haven't introduced you yet, so. Sorry. <laughs> no, please continue. Speak when spoken to. <laughs> no, when you guys are floating the idea of a different uh, forum or as a podcast, I think uh, maybe just a slightly more digestible way that we can get also more about us and the company and the philosophy and our challenges to more of the company all at once because we can do a, a tech talk or and maybe 20 30 people will come and maybe another 10 will listen and this i think is just another format that might be a bit easier for people to pick up on us and leadership and philosophy and yeah. what we think as a company in a slightly more passive format so yeah yeah, so, so Alan is the MD and founder of Aphely Software, the company that we work for. So we don't have a name for this podcast yet, so we're going to go with what the hell are we doing for a while. Um, and we've got Alan in here to, to talk about the business and give his perspective on his journey. And hopefully people that are interested in listening to this can learn a bit about Alan and his journey and how, how a software business goes from a one-man band to 50 plus people and lots of responsibility. Hmm right cool so let's start with what what were you doing before you started hayfully software we talk about your university a little bit about your background what what were you doing in university yeah sure uh university i was actually just lucky to find computer science because actually prior to that i was heading in like a doctor direction or like a doctor lawyer kind of direction um i've always been that academic crazy top three in the school kind of guy so everybody's expectation was oh, okay you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer and when I realized I hated both of those things and actually that's not what I wanted very late in my matric year was computer science and never actually been computer coder guy I thought yeah maybe I'm fucking dreaming here but yeah I got into UCT got into the business science program in the computer science stream um, I'd also got into DeWitz and into Rao obviously growing up in Joburg at the time I thought yay this was my chance to break away and get some independence from the family and yeah moved to Cape Town when I was 18 yeah and then studied computer science and freaking loved it like first lecture first um, 
first computer science class, I remember they put out, they asked us to put up our hands. It must have been about 400 computer science graduates. Now this is 1998. And they asked, okay, everybody put up your hand who's done programming before. And like two thirds of the class put up their hand, not me. Anybody here that at least knows how to use a mouse and a keyboard? And that was kind of my group. So like 10 guys put up their hand. So and you were the guys in, that would, they would typically think would, would drop out after the first year. Definitely. So you could definitely see the bias in the room like, um, okay, yeah, so you're not going to make it. And then there are so many guys who have never even had, have had a mouse in their hands who have never even touched a keyboard before. And there were like four or five of those guys. So we we're like, wow, wow. okay. <laughs> so I was definitely in the minority. And then interestingly, the lecturer went on to say, okay, so all of you guys that have done programming before, so the two thirds that have put up their hand, they said, you guys are at a disadvantage because I can tell you you've learned bad habits. So all of you need to unlearn all the shit that you've learned. And those guys that were in that middle band, so my band, where there were like the 10 of us, say who've never programmed before, but you know what a computer is? Well done. I was like, okay, cool, level playing field. Okay, maybe Interesting. I'm not. Yeah, that was yeah. quite cool. I don't think that band exists anymore, that group of people that have never done programming. I think it, from now, it's become such a prolific subject, even through primary school, that yeah. most kids entering varsity, I don't know how it was for you, you just finished varsity like yesterday, Harley. Um, yeah, so technically I graduated just over a year ago. Right. And how was the group for you? Were there any, were there any people in your group that had never done any sort of programming, even on the most rudimentary sense, even playing with little robotic toys? Um, there were, there were people that didn't have an in-depth understanding of computers, but I don't think there would ever be a group like you described as people that don't know what a mouse is or haven't used a mouse before. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. having to show somebody how to use a mouse in the first year. They call it a computer literacy subject that are, luckily I managed to just bypass. Yeah. But I had to show an individual how to use mouse. It was quite a <laughs> one yeah. eye-opening thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, and when, when I was sorry, but when I was four, I was playing a uh, Doom, so that would have been two thousand. So I mean, I'm, I'm four years old and I'm getting used to keyboard and mouse and yeah. concepts like that. Yeah, I mean, and my level of computer knowledge. I mean, actually, my older brother and my younger brother were more into like taking apart machines and doing the hardware thing. And like at the time, in so when it was just like pre-matrix, so like ninety five, ninety six, and. We had some early computers that were in my dad's office and I'd go upstairs and the extent to my computer, I had no interest in taking it apart and plugging in and working on, you know, changing out the graphics card and stuff, which my brothers were really into. But we played like Space Quest and King's Quest and stuff. Okay. And it was green monochrome kind of computer. Nice. So I kind of knew, I knew DOS and I knew some like basic commands and that was about it. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll do some coding. But yeah, the first first lectures were just epic like when it sunk in actually how perfectly suited to my personality and that programming this whole time had evaded me from because i could have been doing it from standard eight and i could have been doing ad while i was doing ad maths and doing advanced maths in standard eight nine and ten there were kids doing programming and i never yeah, it wasn't just really wasn't like on your a radar. thing Anyway, so at that point, I was like, ah, oh, idiot, maybe I should have been. But, you know, apparently it would have set me back according to the lecturer. So. And how did university go for you? Loved it. Uh, out the gate, um, ComSci, uh, did your yeah, first dean's list on the first year. Yeah, great. First year maths, because I'd done a lot of ad maths in matric, maths was like a breeze. I'm like, I've done all this maths before. So I was like, I think I've got dean's list for... Uh, maths as well and then second year came and some like girlfriend wobbles and was a little bit high and cocky and was like I don't need to fucking go to maths and like 
classic like the advice I was given. They said, yeah, first year maths is first year maths, second year maths is, and I was like, yeah, whatever. It was like so easy. Anyway, I missed like two lectures because I'm going to go and visit up a girlfriend up in Joburg. I'm like, eh, stuff that. Came back and missed two lectures on like, now they started Fourier transforms and like wave theory on day one of second year. I was like, fuck. Anyway, so like I failed first semester maths, clawed it back like at the last minute, and then never like, you know, did ne- not miss a maths lecture after that again. Because And then I was like humbled by yeah, yeah, yeah. second year maths is another level. Then I yeah, got back into it, obviously loved it. Um, then I... You're one of very few. <laughs> I, I mean, I did maths all the way now to fourth uh, to third year maths. So it was quite intense. Um, yeah, never missed a maths lecture ever. And then I made a similar mistake in the end of second year, computer science. I was like, yeah, top my game, like assignment, assignment, like no problems. And then also same girlfriend. I'm like, ah, I'll go and visit her for my birthday up in Joburg. Terrible Miss, influence. I, des- I decided, nah, I think I can skip one. You know, these like tuts you'd have to hand in assignments like every couple of yeah. weeks. And one of the tuts, I'm like, ah, fuck that. I'm going to Joburg. And came Was back. Was flash drive tutorials or did you hand these things in the stiffies? Uh, I remember handing in stiffy discs. Sure. It, no, they had an online submission at that point. Yeah. Well, fancy university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. UCT, UCT was, man. Yeah. <laughs> and failed second year computer science like outright and and it came down to that assignment that i didn't hand in was worth you know whatever percent and i got i can't remember now it was something like you know the dp you'll be able to yeah right yeah i got the dp was 40 percent and i got 38 no 37 and like shit now i'm like oh semester behind my dad's gonna kill me like we don't have we know my dad's paying for studies but he's not paying me to fuck around and thankfully in that year a shitload of people had failed so they they then said oh they're gonna drop the dp they're gonna drop the dp because a whole lot of people failed i'm like okay awesome and they dropped the dp by two so it was now 38 and i still got 37 (laughs) (laughs) anyway so i i think i begged and they landed up dropping the DP again with another bunch of people that got like their 30s and they dropped yeah. it again. I was able to rewrite. I rewrote, I got like 98. And then I was like back in the game. Then from third year on, I smacked it. Yeah. I did, yeah, then I think I learned <laughs> second year was a bit of a mess. But then your yeah, third year and honors year, I finished UCT with the highest honors mark. Yeah, my group highest honors list in computer science that they've had I think we're like 93 for our thesis yeah. oh, that's awesome. so I ended UCT like really strong and UCT's got a very strong computer science program it's one yeah. of the best in South Africa if not the best yeah, right, yeah. So. And, I, and what's interesting now the business science program I didn't realize that at the time just actually how impressively well balanced it is I mean it was obviously difficult and it had its challenges but I bump into a number of people now in their sort of also like me early 40s late 30s and um, oh, I did business science oh, I did business science oh, I did business science so there's definitely something to that mixture that they're onto and the, what they're teaching in the mixture between the engineering and the business so I know UCT being one of the top computer science universities to go to um, has a lot of companies go to them and you know offer to pay for people certain years or anything like that and then you go work for them um, after you're done studying did you have anything like that in terms of your first job I, I did try so when I got into um, 
UCT. I had an application in at Standard Bank actually for one of their bursaries to try to help with the studies. I was, I think if I remember correctly, I was accepted in the first round and then in the end was, wasn't part of the quota to be allowed to get that bursary anymore from Standard Bank. So this would have been 1997. So I would have heard about that in my matric year. And then, yeah, I got in and then I remember it being, yeah, I pushed for my dad um, going, okay, the bursary thing didn't work. Okay, are we going to, we're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that, yeah, my folks had, my dad had set out to cover uh, a degree for each of my kids. And it was like a four-year degree for each of you. So if you could do it in four, it was all paid. If you botched a year, you're paying for that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did you have that deal? Yeah. Yeah, A lot of people got, got that deal. Yeah. I mean, still, I hadn't realized at the time actually the amazing advantage that that is because yeah. of the sort of phenomenon of competitive advantage. So when I started my first day of work, zero student debt and my first salary comes in and I just can go to fill my car and, and well, attempt to buy a car and have a car at that stage. And you've got no debt and you can start. That's great. Compared to somebody else that's actually joining, yeah. I hadn't realized that gap between starting your first day of work and that full salary is yours versus no actually a third of that salary is not yours and that can be a massive difference for how your next five years goes yeah Yeah. absolutely it's like compound interest but in reverse what was your first job my first job was a dev junior dev job at really uh, you got lucky (laughs) and it was cool i i'd gotten the job technically before i'd graduated so i went for interviews actually reluctantly because i was with a mate and he um he was like super nervous and anxious about it. And I was like, December time, we still had a couple of exams to go and he was going hunting for um, jobs and I was with him the one afternoon. And he's like, come, come, we're gonna go register at uh, Datafin actually. So Datafin still runs today, the recruitment company. He was gonna go there and fill out his profile. And I'm like, oh, dude, we're going to the beach. Just like, fuck it, man, let's just get our exams. We'll look for work in January. Like, dude, relax. And he's like, no, 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 we gotta go, we gotta go. You know, we have, we're, gonna get, we're not gonna get work. Gonna, I'm like, oh, dude. So we go there and I was like, let's just pass. There's no point even looking for work until we passed our exams. Like, don't want part. This is me and my best mate who were in our thesis group together. So he's like, no, we're going. So we got a data fern. I sit outside, he goes in, he gets his photo done. They take his details, you make like a CV. And the lady's like, oh, so you're also studying. You should come in. Let's just do a profile for you. I'm like, check. Seriously. Like, Trying to have a holiday. Yeah, like I'm, I've examined, I've got examined in two days. Like, what are you doing? And uh, she's like, ah, well, look, why are you here? Let's just get a photo. And she does a photo, she does a profile. I'm like, okay, can you go to the fucking beach now? You know, so we go to the beach and we can carry on, study his exams. <laughs> Rob gets an interview at Jam Warehouse. I then get the phone. Also, Jam Warehouse was hiring a bunch of devs and they were like a new, new dev company on the scene. They had about six devs and then went for the one interview, got it. And they're like, okay, you can start. And I said, well, I haven't passed my exams yet. And I remember when they asked for the interview, I'm like, guys, like, can I just come in January? So, no, 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 we're interviewing now. And then the recruiter was pushy, you know, like more recruiters. So technically I had one interview and they got the thing. And then the recruiter's like, you're not going to get that offer again. You hadn't even passed an exam. No. So this is now like early, early December. I think we still had like three more CompSci exams, another CompSci exam to go. And then, so I accepted it. And then I started on the 7th of Jan. Okay. Yeah. Straight uh, out of class. What were you doing for them? Um, C Sharp, .NET, uh, web forms. We were building. I was meant to join an old mutual project. So they had apparently won this old mutual gig and I was going to join on this old mutual project. That was what when I interviewed in December. By the time I joined on the 7th of January, they're like, scrap that. That didn't work out. You are on Tesco. I'm like, what's Tesco? 
they're like, okay, so Tesco's this retailer in the UK. I'm like, whoa, what the fuck? Um, and about four days later, the Tesco team flew down to come and like inspect their new team and and met me and the MD and the technical director and and and, and I was just one of the junior devs that was on this Tesco team. And yeah, got thrown into some like BA sessions on like day five of being out of varsity, just as the junior scribe, just to like listen in on okay. what they're building. And there was a technical guy, my technical director. So like the U equivalent, the Sean equivalent uh, was, I think I was 22. He must've been 30. He was the senior dev. So this was their like flagship client and Tesco was coming down to visit and they brought like a team of four people. And then we went into the boardrooms and we started BA. And I'm just there as a junior dev, like just listening in. But it was amazing because I was like, it was just like day one of the new domain. Boom, yeah. this is what we're building. And I asked some intelligent questions. And then my uh, technical director who was the lead dev, he got called to some emergency on the second day. So we had a full day of that. And then the second day he left. And like Alan. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that wasn't planned. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I think I asked some intelligent questions on day one, but yeah. it was not the plan that I was meant to be like running the show or, yeah. or, or handling these BA workshops. Like, yeah. so where's it, the not that I knew at the time, but like, where's the BA? Was this was this um, a pre-sales meeting kind of thing, or was, no, no, they or was already this like, won the, the contract? contract. Okay. And the pro, this was now the beginning of the project and getting into the detail of the requirement. Yeah. Okay. All right, and and that was it. Sounds to me okay. So a bit of background: Tesco is now a client of Hayfield Software. So it sounds Correct. to me that was your first and last job, where you worked for. Yeah, boss. I worked for Jam Warehouse from two thousand and two until two thousand and. I think when I moved over to the UK, I moved over to the UK the first time in like two thousand and five. I was technically still an employee of the South African company, and then yeah, in, or in the two thousand and six. I then set up Payfully Software in the UK. They stopped employing me and I moved over to be a contractor. Okay, so, so, so technically what, I was only employed from 2002 to 2006. So what prompted the Payfully Software company? Did you did you create that company in 2006 to facilitate your contract with Jam Warehouse during the Tesco era, or was there was there any, was there a planned venture there from the get go? No, it was actually not not as planned as I, would, I could make out that I was some mastermind. No, at, at the time, I actually thought, I'm going to go to the UK. I'll go for two years, get some international experience, learn Tesco on the ground, and then I'm going to come back. And I wanted to get more experience. I mean, I don't mean a dev now. I mean, I've only been, I'd been there for two years and they sent me to England. So I've only been a dev for two years. So I'm hardly my architect that I'm looking at. Yeah. I'm learning from. I'm high. I had another guy, my architect was Guy Langston, who was amazing. And I was like, well, no, Guy Langston. So I'm just going to go to the UK because I have this opportunity to go and do some more BA and get more client exposure, which I think will be good for my experience. And then I'm coming back. Then Jam Warehouse at the time said, well, okay, but like the conversation with Wade now, you want to go to the UK, well, how do, how do you do that? Well, you can go on a work permit, you can go into this and you can go into that. And at the time, you could get in because of my degree and my age and what I was earning, I could get into the UK cheaper as a highly skilled migrant yeah. than going as a work permit linked to the company. And Jam was totally fine with me to go on my independent name because it meant I had to do the admin. Right. they were very light of on course. admin. So they're yeah. like, well, Alan, you deal with the admin. We'll pay for half your visa cost and you pay for half your visa cost. So we did that. I got my high skilled migrants and I entered. And then true to form, they were also brand new in the UK. And they're like, well, we don't really want to employ you because we didn't have to pay your tax and we have to deal with your national insurance and we don't really know how to do that. So if you wouldn't mind being a contractor, that would be cool. Okay. And then you can sort out your own tax. So I was like, 
K. And I remember actually thinking, cheapest. Thanks, guys. It's like, now I'm over here. Now you make me a contract. So yeah. you can like, bin me at any time. Yeah. Like, I kind of wanted to be a, an employee of this jam warehouse right. brand. Hopefully an extension of the business. Correct. I mean, and yeah. I was a, there now. I went over as FA, now their technical right hand to their sales arm. So I was like... Uh, and I had some cool responsibility and stuff, but now they were like, well... Punching above your skill weight at that stage, quite high. I yeah. would say so, yeah. And and at the time, obviously it made sense. They were like, if we don't really know what to deal with you, NI, why don't you set up a company? So I always thought I'd set up pay for yourself when I came back and I had more experience and I was more deserving. So there was a plan in the works for a business down the line. It was something in the back oh, yeah, of your yeah. mind. Okay. When I left UCT, I already knew I would have Hayfully Software in South Africa one day and I would have a dev shop and I wanted to build a dev company. And then I went to jam because obviously I need to learn from somewhere and, and I need to start and paycheck. And I, w- I figured I'd maybe do that for like 10 years or eight years and then I'd set up Hayfully Software. So when I then landed in the UK in 2005 and they're like, well, why don't you be a contractor? So I have to set up my own company then. So I'm like, but I'm not going to call it anything else. I'll just move that plan that dream forward and I'll name the thing now what I was going to name it later and I'll just start it in London now rather than in Cape Town later and then boom so I got the name obviously because no one else had that weird surname and huh. and then became a contractor and then issued my first invoice to Jam Warehouse for my 18 days that I did right. that month. thinking the foreseeable future would be contracting I was just yeah. contracting I was a one man but basically the, the Hayfleet software was just a uh, an umbrella company in a way that just handled my tax for me and that was it. So no, there was no like, I'm going to England, I'm setting up a company. And it was like, it was a necessary thing that had to get done if I wanted to get paid because they weren't going to register me on PAYE and national insurance. And then in a way, I remember at the time feeling like cheapest, I'm not thrust into having my own company. So what's this VAT story? Cheapest, why do you so I have to send you an invoice now? Okay, how do I, okay, do I keep tax back? Like, how do, what am I? And I'm learning. This is now 2000 and late 2005 I'm still sort of business back and forth and then I set up the company to start the new financial year in the, in the April of 26 2006 so that's when I sent my first invoice so then I'm three and a half years into working so I'm 24 so yeah I don't it was very much like thrust into having okay. a business yeah. so you always like you said you always wanted at some point to have your company and that just kind of accelerated the process. Yeah. Um, knowing a little bit about your family, how much of a influence was that coming from a family where a lot of members actually have their own company? Oh, no, it's, yeah, it's a definite, definite part. I think, um, I think I always figured, I think through university, through enjoying business science and enjoying the business aspects and not learning about law and learning about marketing and learning about commerce and having that degree, I think I gained some confidence in, yeah, I can do what my dad does. Like I could totally do that. So yeah. and you got the wealth foreign. of experience and knowledge to gain from him as well. Yeah. And it also didn't seem that scary to me. So on the life of entrepreneurship, I mean, I don't know if you saw on Facebook the other day, I posted a photo um, where I, I'm standing in front of my dad's Bucky and right behind me is Hayfully Construction, what was Hayfully Homes was the, his company name at the time. So I've I've had the surname on the wall behind me, providing for the broader family since as far back as. Right. In fact, I think I was six in that photo, and I think my dad had set up that company probably when I was four. So I've pretty much wow. only ever known Hayfully on the wall. It was Hayfully Construction, Hayfully Homes. Hayfleet Publications, those are just my dad's companies. Then there's Hayfleet Waterproofing, which are my uncles. And it was AG Hayfully and Sons, which was my grandparents. Um, So yeah, there's sort of the Hayfleet. So I think early on when I was like, 
I could totally run my own business. I think I have the skill for it. I think I've got the, the genes for it. I kind of understood it. And I'm like, all right, Hayfree Software is mine. And I just sort of put a pin in it and then went to work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Hayfully nine times. Now we all know how to pronounce it properly. Um, yes. That is the biggest thing. Where do you work? Yeah. Spallets. Yeah. That doesn't even help. Um, okay. So so you now have this company. You're now invoicing Jam Warehouse. You're sitting in the UK. Things are looking up. Presumably families moving on that side. And what happened in the transition from a Jam Warehouse contractor to... Hayfully Software, the actual business. What what led to okay. that? So for a while, it, it, it ran as Jam Wells, and they paid my invoices every month for a long time. Um, then I started to get to grips like, actually, this contractor thing makes a lot of sense because I was programming in the evenings for on-site for my brother from London, and it allowed me then this capacity and this contract where I could actually do any dev that I wanted. So I was coding a lot in the evenings, I was coding a lot in the weekends, and I picked up some work with uh, NeuroCo, which is a neuromarketing company doing some cool like mathematics stuff. So then I was like, oh, okay, now I had two clients and I was coding for them in the evenings and weekends and I'd invoice them and then I'd go back to my nine to five and I'd invoice mm. Jam. And because I was a contractor, I could be like, well, guys, you don't really need me on a Thursday, so I'm gonna, so then I got used to this, okay, I can actually control my own time. I don't need to think like nine to five anymore. Mm. So then I was coding on Neuroco, or Amoeba 64 and Onsite and Tesco. I was still doing some coding on Tesco when I was in the UK, even though a team took over from me back in Cape Town in Jam Warehouse. And we ran like that for a long time. 2008, 9, 10, Christy and I got married in 2006. And I remember getting to a stage where I was building on site and working for Jam Warehouse, say 12 days a month, because I could make enough money on 12 days of my day rates. And then I'd spend the rest of the time coding on site. Yeah. And we got in 2008 when we launched on site to WBHO. So that was like 2007, 2008. So like, it was good fun. Um, and 2009, I think it was only around 2009, yeah, that the Jam Warehouse wobble happened. So there was a altercation between Tesco and the, the management team in Cape Town and that soured this relationship with Tesco and it was a it was a mess. Jam Warehouse was getting very uh, antsy, like no, you pay our invoices. We're not writing another line of code until you pay our invoices. And sort of Tesco was like, well, we're not paying you until you fix what you said you were going to fix. And at, uh, at that time, and now I now I see more. Obviously, I, um, I understand more of the dynamic. But they were basically doing fixed cost dev and got into the classic problem of fixed cost scope creep issues. And they also got into the problem of intellectual property where they were building a product and intellectual property was ambiguous does tesco own that is it tesco's exclusively or is are, are we heard that you guys are using it with pick and pay like so what's going on so that caused some friction and some issues and therein the relationship got really bad very quickly and that was now between the south african management team and tesco who had the contract our, our uk yeah. team so at that stage it was just me and tom who was my um, md at the time we were our unit and we had great relationships with Tesco. But yeah, the Tom was there in the UK with you. Correct. Yeah. So he was sort of the UK equivalent, my MD. And I was at that stage, I had then become his most technical right hand. And him and I were, yeah, it was awesome. Um, he also taught me a hell of a lot around marketing and sales because he was the ex marketing director of Disney. And yeah, he had some epic experience. So I learned a hell of a lot from him. But sorry, just you just glossed over marketing director of Disney. 
Yeah. Okay. So he, just to he make sure that just happened. <laughs> yeah. So he, you know, he has an amazing record. He was also connected to the neuro guys who were doing a lot of neuromarketing with some also some amazing brands. You know, Tom today is a like a thought leader on neuromarketing and neurostimulus around EEG and skin conductivity and like yeah, it's his what his new realm is really interesting. But anyway, I digress. So at um, at that point, the relationship had gotten really bad between the South African management and Tesco and it left now Tom and I with this mess right Tesco would stop paying invoices so now I was not being paid anymore so it kind of deteriorated quite fast and yeah the management team in in South Africa in hindsight I I see now hadn't done a particularly good job in leading us through that and yeah I remember this was now around about 2009 and I remember now not being paid, having a number of invoices unpaid by Jam, and they're saying, well, we'll pay you when Tesco pays us. We, you know, we can't. And I said, well, yes, okay, this is not tough. So we've been married three years, and uh, I remember thinking, okay, well, that's it now. I'll just go and focus on neuro stuff and on-site, and I'll just go back and get a job and do something. Mm-hmm. And I remember being quite angry about, yes, this is my entire career. My entire, like I got out of RC day one. I met Tesco. I wrote the first lines of code. They flew me to England. I had done the first sets of training i'd done the first line of business analysis i mean literally i'd like touched the genesis of each aspect of that software project in tesco and now the relationship because of other people's egos and stuff we're now in this like really weird place and obviously i didn't i wasn't privy to all of it right i was just the guy that was just not just not getting paid and therein came the came the sort of aha moment because I remember being really angry going well that's it I suppose this is these things happen and I'm just gonna kind of go get another job now you know and yeah. that's it Tesco's that era is like over because I can't go and talk to Tesco like it's their client and I must now wait for the, the guys above me to you know resolve it I'm sure it's resolvable yeah. but yeah. it's not going anywhere and they're making it worse and it was just like yeah so therein was the, the epiphany going actually you know what this is this is bullshit this is like my career this is my value and my relationships and like my credibility also in this project and yeah, personal really, investment everything all your yeah, time and yeah. i thought sense I'm, of self-worth i'm not gonna let yeah now that was that was not 2009 so about seven years of my cv not going nowhere the system was being used but now tesco were threatening to bin the whole thing and because now no one's maintaining it so now it's falling into kind of disrepair and it needs maintenance and there's bugs on it and the users are upset and like it's just like not going anywhere so yeah, that's when I thought, actually, let me, I can take control of this. Why, why can't I take control of this? And I thought, like, I could, I can't not try. So, yeah, then I thought of this mess could be my opportunity to turn this into more of my control and change this for what I would want. And, yeah, so I contacted, obviously, Jam Warehouse and tried to get undercover what, what the mess was and spoke to the MDs and said, okay, if you guys will let me, out of my contract seeing as no one's getting paid if you let me out of my contract i would like to go and talk to tesco and see if i can get us back around the table so this was presuming that you were genuinely trying to resolve the contract for oh, yeah because yeah, i'm thinking guys well and this is my career and this is a system that i think is worth fighting for and i've now lost faith that you guys can improve it or fix it so can i give it a go um but if I go in there with my Jam Warehouse business cards, which I, and in fact, I never even had Hayfully business cards at that point. I just had, nobody really knew 
of Haverly Software and didn't have Alan at HaverlySoftware.com. I was Alan at Jam Warehouse and Haverly Software was just was on my invoices and, I got a, and that's how I got paid, right? So Tesco saw me the whole time as Jam Warehouse. I was the lead dev and then the lead analyst and then the trainer and I was linked to Jam Warehouse UK. So when I went to the MDs of uh, Cape Town office, and said, can you let me out of my contract? They were like, well, you, know, you can't make it worse. So you're like, you might as well like knock yourself out. But I knew if I went in with my Jam Wales business cards, Tesco's going to say, get them. Mm. Yeah, you tainted by bent. the whole, yeah, yeah, we do not want to work with you anymore. And I was, even though I had my personal relationships, that the, the name was now this like... Tarnished. Yeah, I left bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So I then said back to my MD at the time saying, can I go in? But I need to go in as Alan, as Hayfley Alan. And they said, sure, go for it, okay. So I obviously got in writing and cleaned up the contract and effectively gave my equity back because I had 10% stake in Jam Warehouse UK, which was now kind of worth it. So I also had to have a nice agreement with Tom to say, Tom, I'm also giving my equity back there. And Jam Warehouse, I'm no longer Jam Warehouse. I'm now Alan at, at Hayfley Software. They said, sure. Then I went to Tesco on like Tuesday and spoke back to Andy, the original project manager from the day I left Falsity. So the, the, the day I worked at Jam Warehouse on yeah. that 7th of Jan and I met Andy. He was still the PM after all that time. And I said to him, okay, so now I'm Alan at Hayfley Software and I brought now my newly printed Hayfley Software cards. And I was like, told okay. him this whole time, I've been Hayfley Software, but I've been contracting, right? They're my contractor. Right. I am now out of that contract. If you let me, I would like to fix this, can I try? And he's like, fuck yes. Okay, he didn't say fuck yes, but yeah. it was like, I was, I've been waiting for you to do this. I just, it would have been inappropriate if he did. Yes. So I was like, ah, oh, okay. If he'd sort of prompted you to do it. Correct, because then he's kind of like soliciting. Yeah. It's, and it he's also probably wouldn't, got a, be, wouldn't yeah. be good, you know, in his contract that he would have with Jan Wales. So I said, no, cool. Well, I've sorted that well out now. They are happy for me to try to resolve this. If you guys are happy for me to resolve this as Alan, they're like, definitely, please do, because we see the value in the system. We don't want to turn it off either, but we just can't work with them if these things aren't resolved. And then, yeah, I was in this unique position where I knew enough of how the models worked. I was then able to get information on the rate card that was being used right. and go, okay, so right. That's pretty interesting. What was in it for, for Jamway House to release you? So they would technically be losing you as a development resource by Correct. releasing so they were losing contract. my margin, but they were making nothing right at that time because no one's paying my invoice anyway. Right. So, so they had nothing for you, you were on the bench. They, they only had Tesco as a client. No, no, they had plenty. Of, they, they had two other UK clients and they had other clients in uh, South Africa at that time. So there, there, was no, there was no reciprocal agreement in place to release you to say, okay, well then when you do win this back, remember we're a 10% shareholder of the Hayfully software brand or but nothing like that. The UK, so Tom, he was sharp enough. I think he saw that I could do it. And then Tom and I had a deal because I said, well, I had the 10% equity in the UK. He'd said, okay, cool. If you do it and if you're successful, then as part of my repayment of being given access to the client, then yes, I there was a commission agreement that anything that I would make out of Tesco, I fed back into the UK. I think 10% of whatever I would make in the next 12 months. Right, okay. So Tom yeah, that was makes sharp, sense. Yeah, so Tom was sharp enough to go, cool, if you do it, it would help him. And obviously my relationship with Tom is very different. So I'd be yeah, honest, of course. And, I would, and in this scenario, it's the UK entity that I would be shafting out of my margin, right? Because if I'd, I was building the UK, I don't know, 400 a day and they were billing me at 500 a day. I'm basically just taking that 100 pounds a day out of Tom, right? And that's right. how he was running 
and being MD and I, like I, I had an appreciation of how he was operating so I didn't want to screw him out so I then I was totally fine with that model but yeah South Africa was more like knock yourself out go for mm. it and then it worked so from that day Tesco said cool register for a supplier go for it and if you can help us negotiate a how we're going to continue and you know one of the first thing I then I tore up the hosting agreement it had nothing to do with the jam warehouse just the host at the time was murking the water because they were dropping the ball and it wasn't jam's fault so i was able to bring some perspective that i don't think anybody was able to bring yet saying hold on there are some faults here by the host that needs to live with them and we need to bin them like now and we then moved to rack space and then i said right in the jam warehouse contract yeah we've outgrown that let's tear it up the intellectual property understanding was flawed incorrect sort of brushed up on some ip law and redrafted a contract to get them back on the table they made an agreement around the intellectual property that was contentious that i helped them sort of mediate and then they were back and then i was right. but now i was now i was this like trusted advisor i got almost elevated to trusted advisor role in tesco so what are you now 25 26 years old yeah you know, i was 2009 um yeah and now we're about 10 years later and tesco is still a client yeah yeah um, that's incredible so you so but yeah so after that jam then continued so i so we did it and just and then I, I made i assisted in saying right jam still has value they still have great developers they understand the code base just their day rate was a bit high so i helped tesco reduce their day rate back within market relates so, so jam you, i wasn't super popular for that one i was um, gonna ask you yeah. but i said to tesco that is the best thing for the system i said i could have technically taken all of the work on that day and be like boom i'm building a team right now but i didn't have the team leads i didn't have the senior devs there was no ways i could have done justice that fast and i said the devs in cape town were good like they were still my team that i was part of when i was there so i said let's give jam back but we're gonna watch them and i will watch the quality and i'll watch the ba and i will take control of the ba yeah. and now the relationship's completely different because now they're a supplier team they're a dev supply team and it's got yeah. clear oversight and, and yeah and then the revenue continued so then jam continued to do work and they got revenue back again for 2009 2010 2011 2012 so then we worked in this new way where i was non-jam warehouse i was hopefully software but i was a trusted advisor on the side as oversight to Tesco but my loyalty was clearly with Tesco mm. and Jam when I was a supplier that was monitored and watched by me and it was awesome and we so in a way then the project Jam got another four years of revenue that would, they would have otherwise not gotten and that was in the beginning of a my relationship with Tesco as Tafley Software uh, from 2009 yeah. okay and then how long did it take you to move move back to Cape Town um, we moved back in 20, I think we had a trial visit back in 2013 just to come back and see do we still want to be in South Africa like is this are we making the right decision here for okay. business and everything and then we moved back in 2014 legitimately yeah and presumably moving back was the point in time where you decided okay I'm going to give this a crack as a business as a yes to try um, and grow it as opposed to just be a account manager at that time Tesco. we had about three or four people in the uk i then hired a few over those years i was able to pick up some more because now i was doing more of the ba had a few opportunities where some new dev came out of tesco where tesco said here's some new work can you build it for us we'd prefer you to do it not jam and i was like well okay hold on as a trusted advisor is that the right call and it was like actually yes i can build that faster than them so then yeah we started to grow a team um, business was then cool in the uk we're making some good money um, and then on-site was getting really interesting back here yeah. and thought, okay, 
now's the chance to do it and also Tesco um, at that stage Jam Warehouse had gone under so there was now a new deeper opportunity with Tesco to say all right now should I replicate and build a team for you in Cape Town. Yeah, and it was the correct point to do it, right? So you wouldn't be stepping on Jane Wilson's toes, you wouldn't be taking away revenue from them. It's, it's, yeah, it was like a natural movement. Yeah. It also happened to coincide with us being in the UK for seven years. So we had now gotten our passports and we thought, like, do we do we want to be here now? And we had Zach was now, he was born in 20, 2010, so he was like three. We are like, okay, so now we're thinking about schools and we're thinking about buying a bigger house. Okay, we either not commit to London or we move back. Okay, so then that's when Hayfleet Software proper the Cape Town office. Presumably there was an office at that time, or were you working from a, a um, garage? That's every de- dev's dream. Yeah. <laughs> First was from house, yeah, from okay. home, and we bought a house in Durbanville, and I was sort of in the side room, and then um, it was around that time I think that we hired Zach. And this is Zach, the employee, not. No, yeah, not Definitely Zach, your not son. My, child. No, not my son. No, yeah, no, the three-year-old prodigy. <laughs> so Zach's our yeah, longest-running uh, SA employee. And then I got a small office with Regis in St. Louis City. Okay. And at that stage, it was on-site. Pretty much was the only dev work we were doing. And we were doing some analysis work. Right. So, so if, if you were, if I was to ask you, if, as you were reflecting on your business and your goals and your future dreams for your business at that time, did you have, in hindsight, any delusions of grandeur, any sort of naive views of where this business was going to go? That you, <laughs> um, I, I think so. Yeah, I, um, I think after I was like, oh, okay, so now I've got this company running and I'm pulling jam and I've got another client. Then yeah, yeah there was this like um, bit of an ego sets in. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I, I struggled a lot with how to actually grow though, so it was still very like organic. I maybe wasn't concentrating enough in. Uh, marketing 101 or something but um, definitely some naivety in just how to run a business so I made stupid uh, you know like classic 101 stuff where sweet invoice comes in and you don't go hold on 20% of that is VAT and you better keep some tax back and you know like stupid stuff and then you land up getting to the end of the financial year and then you accountants made a mistake because you didn't send them all your receipts and you kind of are uh, focusing on the business and loving code and you'd like invoices and receipts or like whatever dude and then you have to pay a 30,000 pound tax bill and you don't have 30,000 pounds set aside and then you start your next so your first financial year is like amazing oh running business is so easy check out all this cash I'm like making all this yeah whoa and then you then you get the tax bill and you now have to find 30,000 pounds and then you start the second you start your second financial year 30,000 in the yeah. in the red and then go okay running a business is fucking difficult yeah. <laughs> it's, sort, it's sort of like rece- <laughs> it's sort of like receiving your first paycheck where they yank 30% of it away in tax but on a much larger scale when it comes to running and, a business and later after you've spent it yeah, yeah it's like oh by yeah. the way you were meant to give us that like, yeah. yeah so that was like also you know just silly yeah. okay and, and, and business naivety yeah and your goals for the business back then, have they changed or have any of them been met? Definitely changed. Definitely changed. I, mean, I remember I remember the, a key pivot point being just before hiring Sean. So this would have been around about 2015. So we'd been back from South Africa about a year and, year and a bit. I was still at that stage. Didn't realize what we had. Like a bit, a bit, a bit like an obvious blind spot, right? I was still so 
focused on the typical software um, dot com uh, model holy grail of finding that product so I was safely software okay. and I was like we're going to do on site yeah, yeah, yeah. then we're going to do big Ninja. and yeah. it was, we it was sell more thing and the product so I would be the engineering and we would do the nice dev and my energy was focused more on the product that we were assisting so hopefully software became and also without me having a clear vision of what I wanted again maybe through naivety it, and maybe being me, me being a more submissive uh, personality and I was like, yeah, well, on-site is the thing. Those kinds of products are the things that you buy for 100 million. And those kind of products are things you buy for 100 million because the model is subscription and it's SaaS-based or it's PaaS-based or it's, those are the holy grail concepts, right? Those are the the software systems that you have. If you're just a dev shop, right? In a way, I think I looked at, well, if I'm just a dev shop, then it's kind of like I'm Jam Warehouse, right? And that was, I kind of looked at that with some negativity. And I was like, well, if I have a choice between a dev shop and product focused I should be more product focused and so I lived in that place for a long time even even when I was doing the work in the UK I remember thinking like that was just a means to an end right I'm going to work to do some BA to pay for some time and then I'm coding in the evening because I'm building a product right? mm-hmm. so it's still very product product mm-hmm. product product and it was only really around 2015 after a couple of cuck hires and we were just like this is like really difficult like what's going on here and then dawns on you actually products are hard like you can't just you know on site for the years that we put in and the success that it's had it's it still needs that push it still yeah. needs a level of energy that either i can't give it or it, it just it just takes time so all yeah. of these things that was then slowly dawning on me going maybe i'm putting too much focus on product things where i am the engineer and i'm relying on the jockeys too much right because if you're going to do that i better have 20 of them right, right? because w- one out of 20 one out of 100 is maybe because so now i'm working with three of them like yeah i mean this is a topic I'd, I'd love to explore on a on a much deeper level what it takes what is the difference between a software consultancy a software dev shop versus yeah. a product development yeah. team right yeah um i think they are as you mentioned they are fundamentally two different beasts that share some common dna um yeah some so of challenges course, but so if you're running one and you think you're running the other it's 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 a completely misleading concept you yeah. they yeah. just don't fit yeah and i think therein was my lack of vision where i was either looking down on a consultancy model and was put this product model on this pedestal underestimating actually how difficult it is and thinking that i could actually do it or that you're going to get a hit within three attempts so that shift happened to me around 2015 and when I thought, actually, you know what? I've we've got some great clients right now, the likes of Tesco, that we're doing consultancy dev for. There's nothing actually wrong with the consultancy model. Yes, it was wrong in the way Jam Warehouse was doing it, and I learned a lot from that. But and I looked around at the you know the other dev shops in South Africa, going, hold on, there's a way to do consultancy and to do it epic. And I. I think I have a, I figured I had more of a strength in finding talent and how to build and being a dev than uh, finding a product idea that has a better route to market. What do I know about commercializing a product to market? But I know a hell of a lot about dev talent and how to code things. So I then shifted focus to being like, actually, that's what my value is. And the very next hire was Sean. 
What was that? Was that decision kind of a resigning yourself to the fact, or was it a positive experience for you? No, it was. A, yeah, it was a positive experience. It was going. Actually, I my skill set is better. I was realizing realizing that what am I good at? Right. Yeah. Okay. My track record is showing that I'm not particularly good at identifying the right product and being able to get it to market. Because what do I know about those products? But what is it that I'm good at? I'm good at coding. I know what good code looks like, and I uh, uh, had had some good hires among some bad hires, and was able to weed out what I did wrong with the bad hires, and thought, okay, I can do a dev shop. Let me rather set up a something like Jam Warehouse. But if if I was running Jam Warehouse, how would I do it? As opposed to just almost like going, oh, consultancy, that's bad. Don't go there. I was like, no, no. There's actually some real value that we can add here. So no, it was a positive. It was a positive shift, and then we had one logistics, which was a client I probably would never have taken if I wasn't thinking in that way. Then hired John, and that was in the beginning of all right. Now we're not hiring talent based on what a product like Onsite needs. We're hiring talent based on what a dev shop needs to build for multiple clients. So this is 2015, 2016, when you start having this yeah, mind sh- shift? Yeah, that was maybe end of 2015, early, and then I think Sean joined early 2016. And yeah. how many employees were you at then? I think Sean was number five, I think. So you're yeah. sitting at five. We're now five years later off this mindset, and we're just 50. just above at 50. Yeah. So kind of take us through those those five years and that, that how that mind shift really maybe benefited but also just caused massive yeah, growth so it's definitely a mushroom growth like a yeah. nuclear and, growth yeah and yeah I, I, I put it down to uh, finally unlocking what it is that I felt my value was whereas before I was like well I'd only hire a dev so we'd only get growth when on-site was now selling and making revenue to be able to pay for more devs, right? If you're thinking like a product. Reactionary. Yes, yeah. it's very reactionary. And I'm not in control of the sales of on-site or those products. I'm not in control of those. So it's in a way like I have no control over the growth of Afley Software because I'm I'm basing, I'm basically hitching the success of Afley Software onto the wagons of two things that I don't fully control. So when I change the mindset of going, cool, let's not shoot those things in the head. Obviously, we still engage with those clients, but shifted my priority to be okay i think let me not put so much uh hitching of our wagon onto that let's hitch my wagon onto me and actually what i can do as a consultancy and see what that does right and got onto more of the vision of well what you see now in our induction stuff is well what's the problem now with devs they are being body shopped out the bums and seats in some crap environment in some corporate uh, bored out of their minds, underused, want to do dev properly but can't. Um, yeah. Frustrated. Uh, frustrated, yeah. And obviously, I learned a lot from the jam. I remember unpacking that a lot, going, right, they were doing a lot of fixed cost stuff, but now there's agile, right? So let me get more efficient on that and only provide clients outside of fixed cost. So, right, we're going to remove the lumpy nature of their problem cash flow was always this lumpy it's always a fight end of it it is always a fight so I was like okay we're going to do consultancy but we're going to go agile and we're also going to choose certain kinds of clients and we're going to choose the dev and shifting strategy be like and only international clients so that we will never get asked to be on site yeah so that was probably a a 
refining all over those those few months around logistics. And then it was like, okay, this is working. Now it's boom, another dip, another dip, another dip. Now it's all in our control. We're doing a great job. The client likes us. I'm in control of the sale because I'm in control of the relationship. I like, say, one of these products, right? So now it was, I don't know, just feeling like, okay, now I can, I can control our talent, our quality, people, what clients we have, how we talk to them, and the sale. Yeah. And then two, three, four, five. Next slide. Next, and then it, yeah. So I think it's not that I'd intended to. It's not like I was like, right now I'm changing. I want to get fifty. It was more like, okay, this is getting really difficult. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm stupid here. And remember, it was a, having a conversation around Guy Addison actually. So, where where I've given Guy credit, who actually came up in conversation the other month, is it was through conversations with him that he actually gave me confidence in going. Dude, you do realize you can, um, what you have and the ability to for you to have and what you've done in doing that with Tesco, you've obviously can sell. So why don't you just sell yourself as yourself, not try to sell and be hitched to another product where, yeah, you can write great code and it's amazing and you've got built two amazing products and they've got revenue driven, but you can sell. Why are you not selling Hayfree Software direct, you know, not to yeah. like a middleman? Yeah. And I was like... Sell the philosophy, right? Sell yes. the team. Sell the it was only later ethos. did the why kind of come out, but effectively that was the beginning of that why going, actually, yes, when I left to go to the UK, it was about a dev shop, right? If we go back to the university, I wanted to have a software company. It was a dev shop. And I'd obviously lost that on the way because I was told about product, 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 yeah. product. Don't have a dev shop because you're just selling hours. Don't have a dev shop, you're just selling hours and it's um, fixed cost and it's scope creep. And, you know, it dawned on me going, actually, I'm really good at building talent and I can sell. So there's actually, and there's nothing wrong with a consultancy if you're choosing your clients and you're building mm. agile mm. and you're in control of what you're doing. Awesome. So then I was yeah. So when I think I got rid of that stigma, shit just opened. Yeah. So that's great to to talk about the the agile approach and, and the philosophy of the team. And but in reality, the challenges there are are not as simple. We're talking with talking big corporate clients. They've got dogmatic approaches to how they deal with software teams that they've had since presumably the early '90s, the late '80s. Some of these some of these companies. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges you've you've faced in trying to sell your ethos in recent memory that you, that you'd like to relay with us? Um, what I want to know is, was it easy to sell this ethos, or did it take many many sessions and tough meetings and angry people? Because I've, I've been in a few sessions where we're trying to sell agile or the agile ethos to to a customer who's not interested they they've got a bottom line they've got a budget they've got okay well no here's 700k and we need x we need x and if you can't give us x for under 700k we'll find company b who can do that yeah um it is a challenge although i haven't found it difficult to sell the ethos i find as i've refined it and i've understood it more um the clients who understand it resonate immediately out the gate. So the ones that where we've picked up um, with the quick wins, um, they've gotten it and that's actually been really easy to sell the ethos. And our distinguishing feature has been uh, the fact that we are so agile literate as opposed to the client 
needing assistance and wanting to get on the agile train and we happen to have that strength to do it so that's made it a bit easier yeah there are clients that are still uh, sort of have the muscle memory and don't don't want to shift to agile and are still very either waterfall driven or like fixed cost driven um, I think we've learned a lot around that to how to coach them to mature their own uh, process and realize cool like we get it you've got a capex budget you have a budget yeah i understand it goes up to board and you need a number and just try to shift their frame so you use the combination of their language with our language not just going well we don't do fixed cost projects so go away it's more like cool we understand you need a budget we can help you with the budget but we don't know what it is that you're going to build we're going to rather give you a 50 foot you can either have a 50 foot estimate or a 10,000 foot estimate so depending on the resolution of, of your of your estimate will get a sense of what you're trying to build will help design a team based around talent and you're trying to shift the conversation around don't worry about trying to get a one foot uh, altitude resolution on what you're trying to build like a you know like a yeah. hd resolution of what you want get close enough and it's more about the talent what is it that you're trying to build all right then you're going to need two architects or one architect and two seniors and front end and and, and try to shift the conversation and hear them like we hear you that there's a there's a budget and if that's what you need then that's your rough cost per month so based on that you, your budget will afford yeah. 14 months of our team right um, and then try to help them with the confidence that what you're looking to do is possible within 14 months but not that we're committing to do it it's, yeah. it's about helping them with the trust right? yeah I mean, a lot of it just comes down to trust yeah. yeah would you would you agree in 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 the sentiment if i had to say there is no such thing as agile in a boardroom right at the end of at the end of the day everything is a cost line item on a balance sheet. So they would say, right, we've got a million pounds to spend on IT this year on, on, on our internal stuff, right? There's no such thing as, as agile in that conversation because that is it. There is, there is, you can, you're welcome to come in below budget, but there is no going above this number, mm. right? So it's almost a smoke and mirrors. It's almost a lower level discussion to be talking about agile with a company as opposed because that discussion is at the end of the day going to be translated into this many hours this many features this is what you're going to get yeah. for your budget um i have seen it it is getting better because the ctos are now are now the 45 year olds who are also understanding more in this less yes if you want me to a corporate with a cto is I don't know, 58 then yes you might still have that item where he's estimating and they've got the budget first and then they're working it out backwards but I am finding it somewhat more uh, refreshing where yes ultimately there's a line item and there's a budget there's a cap but the CTOs seem to be also playing with a not necessarily a fixed line item but more of a business case so it's not this is the budget you have to build x by here it's more they know they've got that budget and um, all right we need to build these sets of features what's the business value from building that thing so yes if, if you're saying it's going to cost eight roughly eight to twelve months of a team size of x it's going to cost you eight million um, right yes he has to go back and justify that eight is going to have some ROI mm -hmm. or is going to save the business 10. So that's why it's worth spending eight. But um, yeah, the better CEOs, which CTOs are getting there where um, it's less about a fixed budget, um, but the agile awareness and the training is just really light. 
and the muscle memory is strong. So you now need a strong CTO to fight the CEO yeah. or the FD who sees software dev like paving a garden. And there he wants a flat rate and you pave my garden and you should be able to estimate, right? You should be able to estimate within like precision of 3% accuracy, you know, because you're, my, my, you're paving my driveway. Like how hard is it, right? The better CTOs who can defend better, can fight for it better, yeah. and they realize, okay, yeah, software development's more of a an art and it depends and the sand moves and we're trying to hit a moving goal here so the certainty is is at its lowest especially when you're negotiating at the beginning right when you're when you're starting a project that's when you know absolutely or near nothing about it yeah right and that's that's unfortunately when you get asked to predict what what i found the only way to solve it and we've had this with a couple of clients there is no way to solve it head on in an early negotiation because there actually isn't enough trust and to be honest you can't really blame them right it's the same you invite a guy over to come and uh what's paint your house yeah yeah redo your driveway oh yeah paint your house and you're asking for an estimate and he goes nah it's about eight days could be nine could be ten like okay no well give me a fixed cost because you have this implicit assumption that the service provider if you pay him by the day he's going to take longer because he's not incentivized to get it done meanwhile actually no he's actually got other shit to do he actually wants to get your thing done in eight days and then move on to the next job right yeah but the even us when we're hiring a person to paint a house we're also like well no we pay you fixed cost because then we think you're going to be incentivized to get it done faster which can lead to bad quality as well um but we're doing it when we get a guy to paint a house. So most people will have that same. We buy just having software and we come in with our day rate and you just say, well, that's our day rate and we don't do fixed costs, we only do agile. Sure, you're gonna alienate a lot of people just like the guy mm. who did the same thing with painting his house. No, no, you pay me by the day or not at all. Well, you can fuck off then, right? Mm. So mm. in a way you can't really blame him because we would do the same. Only way to solve that is through trust where yeah. if you trusted your painter and he's painted 11 houses of yours already and he comes and he says, yeah, it's 300 rand a day. And he says, ah, about six or seven days, but you've worked with him before and he's genuinely right. Fine, go, like you won't even give it a second thought. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the only way to solve it is to bridge that trust gap, which we either, which we do by just lowering the barrier of risk. So engage, we've got the talent, we yeah. take on the risk. And obviously by having good talent, the risk is actually not that high. Mm. So if you've got epic talent, you can say, cool, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just get started Here's a here's our MSA, so everything's yours. Here's our Annexia. We'll give you a bit of Guy, we'll give you a bit of Harley, we'll give you a bit of Rian, we'll give you a bit of that, and like, let's go. Mm-hmm. We'll talk in a month's time. If you're not happy, you will work on it. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And it's not necessarily to give them a freebie. It's actually to build trust. And the building of the trust then allows you to be able to say, well, here's your team, here's your cost. If we're adding value in the month, we add value in the month. If we don't, you can bin us. So yes, there's an element of trust in and that. a lot of risk on every risk. Yeah, yeah, because if we don't, then yeah, they can bin us. But if you've got good talent, then it reduces the risk yeah. and then you can go. So, but anyway, human relationships are all, all about trust anyway. Yeah. So if it just comes down to trust, so people will be able to treat you more agile. It's because they don't have trust is that yeah. they are well, you're absolutely right. rigid. Um, okay, so if, if, if I'm just based on our conversation here, I'm hearing two major turning points so far. It's the decision to attempt the Tesco contract on your own. And, and which set you down the path of um, starting your own business. Uh, second one being moving back to Cape Town and giving this a go. What are the major turning points in this in this journey so far 
can you think of or that has influenced your significantly influenced your your process in moving the business forward good or bad <laughs> um, another thing that has sped up our strategy is probably the, the level of ambition of the talent that we have so yeah if the first one was stepping up again because we took tesco the other one was like, getting back to a dev shop by moving back to cape town and then we grew and we do all this dev we could probably just continue like this and it would be fun and we can have other clients that next strategy of getting back to having an international having international offices and now having a dev um, ha- having a dev shop in cape town or in south africa and having the office in having an office in london and an office in australia and an office in new york that was more of a yeah that would be pretty cool if i could do that in 10 years from now like let's just build a dev shop in cape town and that's cool i'd say the other thing that sped up is because of the kind of talent that we've hired and the level of ambition and ability it has indirectly given me quite a lot of confidence to be able to pull off doing international faster and obviously there's a lot of guys in south africa that have got opportunities to, to go to cool countries and of course it gives a great opportunity to set up our leaders to be able to do that um, so i would say again like i had an idea to set up the business in five years while well, going to university and then i land up in london and you set it up and it's like okay it's a bit fire it's about five years before i should have now we here say last year and we've got an office in london and there's entity in australia and an entity in the us those things i probably would have had on my own internal list for like 2025 or 2030 yeah. let me just get and used like, to and get good at this thing let yeah. me just get comfortable yeah. and then i'll try um, yeah. but in a way that is a product of something that i said uh, in a, I don't know, earlier regroups about the we're owned by devs run by devs right so if we're owned by devs and run by devs and devs are capable of running at 80 kilometers an hour then my job is to ensure the entity can run at 80 kilometers an hour if the if the entity can only run at 40 k's an hour and the strongest devs inside can run at 80 i'm gonna have a lot of frustrated people right so thankfully my level of ambition and appetite for risk and appetite for risk is uh up there with our most ambitious individuals so it's not a case where they want to go 80 k's an hour and i'm going no 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 guys like relax it's just you know yeah you have a hammock right it's more like okay you want to go 70 sweet okay all right you're ready because if we do this then we're going to do this so i would say that's that has helped fuel and feed this engine for sure right which has been cool yeah Outside of the uh, the people and the ambition that you touched on there, what is something else about this company that's now you know a decent size and pretty established? One of the uh, one of the coolest things about Hayfetty Software. <laughs> well, even let's go even deeper than that. Okay. What is the coolest thing? Single Hayfetty? coolest thing. One right answer. <laughs> um nothing at all it's terrible yeah that's a good question um the coolest thing is the uh, mutual opportunity that it presents right so you can look at the company you i could look at it like on a let's say more depressed day or a 
confidence low confidence day okay it'd be like fuck this is 50 people 50 salaries how do you have enough pipeline to it's just now this this beast is now 50 calories it's 50 miles of 50 families that's like an animal that needs 10 100,000 calories a day to fuel now you're this massive like mammoth that's roaming the savannah if that mammoth doesn't find enough food the mammoth is gonna fucking die and you can go like oh that's like a serious stress of 50 people that needs 100,000 calories to survive every month the coolest to try to answer the question about the coolest thing is the level of talent that's in the company what it represents for the opportunity far outweighs the fear of the mammoth and the amount of energy that it takes mm. it's now like yeah it's a mammoth and it needs a lot of energy and it needs a lot of calories but have you seen its fucking tusks and it can like run through buildings and it can like do a lot of shit it's so, a fucking mammoth yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a fucking mammoth right so you can look at the mammoth as like oh scary I'm, oh, it's, oh. Mm. or you can look at it as what it can do and yeah. what it can do is open offices in Australia and send yeah, talent absolutely. And, it, and it can help uh, what it's been able to do for me and my personal uh professional kind of goals is probably the coolest yeah so to put it another way for me it's 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 great because the challenge is no longer oh can we do this job it's like of course we can do the job it's whether or not we've got enough jobs to do yeah yeah it's whether it's the challenge is just to keep feeding the mammoth that can do amazing jobs yeah and now like what's better feed the mammoth through by going over that mountain or should we feed the mammoth by going over that mountain mm. um, or should we uh, yeah so it's we've got some epic talent and it also allows us to almost come full circle right so I spent a lot of time yeah. thinking product thinking product thinking product and looking down on consultancy okay so now we've done consultancy for a while and I think we're pretty good at it to now now realize now we have the strength now we have the talent to actually take on doing a product and do it with more justice which is obviously where mm. play comes from mm. used to say okay so cool we've done consultancy we can do consultancy we're good at consultancy we've used the energy and the, the uh, sort of the business model of consultancy to build this mammoth okay let's use that mammoth now to do something in product and right. not just keep going on and do it justice right Correct. and have the means and the yes so it's not like that vision of product like the beginning where I put a product on the pedestal so in a way I kind of put the product or took the product off the pedestal and put consultancy mm-hmm. back on focus mm-hmm. and now it's, I think we're getting back to a time where we can put product back in focus yeah. but what's cool is that we can do both so yeah. I no longer had to choose whereas in the past it was very much like product or product or product or product and, oh fucking product's not going anywhere oh that's quite tough and okay yeah, how can I help and now it's consultancy pulled the talent we've got this fucking super tanker of talent okay now what do we want to do with it yeah mm-hmm. then at least from my perspective hey Philly Software as a company is a very personal company in terms of it's not very corporate anyone can go up to anybody else and chat and you know we have people I'm not going to mention names hiring their friends and stuff like that yeah and i'm sure for you it's obviously more personal than to anybody else i mean your it's your name on the door and stuff like that mm-hmm. and to get to this point i'm sure you had to make certain sacrifices outside of the professional world but in the the personal world as well um I've heard some rumors, but I'd like to see what 
your answers are in terms of what maybe personal things you had to sacrifice, whether it be goals or financial things, anything like that hmm. to help the professional company. Sure. Um, there's probably, I suppose, two categories of that. Um, I would say the Okay, there's some obvious ones, but let me cover the more the more uh, more pervasive ones that have spanned the longest amount of time. Okay, is a lot of delayed gratification. I would say there's a lot of delayed gratification in running a business, or maybe just my style of running a business <laughs> that's taken this fucking long. But um, there's a lot of delayed gratification. So there are plenty. No, sorry, Christy, cash flow is not here. We can't go on holiday. Like. I know I said we were going to go to Durban. We actually just can't. Uh, I would love to take the kids, but we just can't. Or cash flow is not right this month, so maybe we can go next month. And a lot of either last-minute holidays where it's like, oh, there's a little bit of cash flow, and I feel really bad because we can't have taken. Okay, let's take the kids somewhere. Um, or just non, not at all, where you just there's just no cash flow. So you've gone uh, delay the gratification, delay the gratification, delay the gratification until your family or wife is on a brink of like okay seriously now like um it's time that we do something as a family and then you take suck it up find a way kind of go so there's probably a lot of like personal sacrifice in in that uh bigger events is probably just taken on uh, a lot of debt so there were times when um i remember a key one uh, would have been 2012 or so I think uh, we had Nadim one developer maybe two, two or three resources in the UK were earning kind of cool and then um, some work dried up with Tesco like some POs weren't getting approved and it's just like whatever was approved now wasn't even no longer approved and and it was just a normal course of business but you, you are, go through those phases right yeah and now but now I've got three salaries only three compared to 50 but three was a fucking like big deal and now you have to make a choice. Okay, I either retrench and let somebody go or borrow cash, go and get a job, do another job in order to pay that salary for that individual to keep them just twiddling their thumbs just so they don't go anywhere because I know this project is coming back. And the thing is, if I let them go and I go, oh, sorry, I can't have enough money for salary, so I let them go. And then I know, or you have to predict that this project is coming back and when Tesco gives it back to me and I have to start all over again because now that individual is gone and you chose the latter option in terms yes. of taking on yeah so you then go bets. right I'm going to pay your salary and I'm going to go get another job so I've done that a couple of times where it's like okay you take the job so we're both let's say we're both coding so there's enough work for two people to code and they take the budget away from one person and instead of it being me you give the budget to the other person so they can still work and then i go do something else and you either can't find work on the right speed so you just like load up cash in your credit card or take a personal loan so i've probably done 11 personal loans of 300,000 rand and above at different events over different times where it's you know those sms's that you get like oh you've been approved for a no, 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 or like you've been approved for an eight thousand pound loan like fuck okay i'm gonna so is that three hundred thousand in total, or three hundred thousand multiple separate times. events? Separate times, yeah, yeah. So sometimes it'd be maybe two hundred, sometimes three hundred, sometimes one hundred fifty, sometimes four hundred fifty. I mean, we at one stage I had one credit card that the UK had given me up to twelve thousand pounds, all of it, twelve thousand pounds. So that's yeah. one credit card with three hundred or whatever that works out to be. Yeah. And those are in those times where you're like, fuck, 
okay, you do the work, I'll do something else, cover, or just do business development to try to get something out. Like, so there's been- So you got your, you got your chips in one basket. You got your chips on the table at all times. Yeah. Yeah, and then you'll clear it, and then right then, then normally the predictions have come right, and you go, okay, right, so back on, back here, cool, I'm glad mm-hmm. I kept you, right, so let's keep going. Yeah, and, then and this contract clears all dead. that stuff, and, and, well, and then yeah. some. Ho- and ho- hopefully, yeah, and then it clears, okay. and then it rolls, and yeah, so I'd say, I'd say taking on debt and the, that burden of debt just to keep moving is a, a personal sacrifice because you've taken on some stuff. Uh, other one, I've just delayed delayed gratification upon delayed gratification upon delayed and I've become it's become a problem where I could delay gratification for fucking ever and it's normally the family or Christy going like okay it's it's enough now like, yeah yeah it's time to you've been building a lot it's time to like extract some value you know and then of course probably the bigger one was the house so uh, when that house we came back from the UK in 2013-14 and we bought a house in Durbanville and I, it was our moving back to Cape Town House. It was sort of a symbol of the success of the UK that we had a company and it was cool and we came back and we wow. bought this great house in, in Durbanville Hills and and it was awesome because the kids were then going to grow. Now it was a five bedroom house with pool and, a, and like a flat lit and it was amazing and it was like, right, this is where we're going to be now for 15, 20 years. We're going to yeah. build a company around this. We're going to have, family going to have more kids in here. Caleb was then born. We're going to now have more kids here. This is this 15 year, right? We're going to do these projects and these projects and I was like, oh, this vision home for the family and yeah then kind of 20 so it's fairly recent recent it was around about 27 because we've been renting now for two years so that would have been 2018 so it was probably around about 2017 yeah so it was kind of exercise uh, kind of access today kind of time we were also growing fast and then you go okay so this house is costing a lot and the cash flow requirement on the business is intensifying because you're building right so that was when it was during that time we were hiring like two people a month two people a month two people a month on that road from remember the one year we did 16 to 35 people right that's like two 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 so that's recruitment fees and two so those two people's salaries for that month and the second month before yeah. the revenue for them comes in so you're perpetually like behind this curve right so that cash flow requirement was a bit intense so i was bouncing um, i don't know i probably bounced our personal bond eight times in one year just perpetually behind just like so my salary would just be like, okay i'll pay myself in the third of the next month the fourth of the next month fourth of the next month try to get it back fourth of the next month hire two people wow it's hire two people if you don't hire those two people i probably could have paid myself it would have been fine but then you can't grow just like hire the two people <sighs> i feel Cash guilty flow. for getting hired because i was in that time period <laughs> and and you two should. people <laughs> <laughs> so sorry <laughs> two people two people and i was like actually this house is is too much if we and i kind of then had an agile approach on my own my personal life going why do we need a massive five-bedroom house now with this garden and like olympic-sized pool and this wonderful driveway and double garage when we barely park in the garage we don't use the flat like we've got two kids that sleep in the same freaking room we've got all this space and all this um, not that we had any money to furnish it but it was like we have there's a lot of space for a 50 year old alan when actually the 34 year old or whenever the 38 year old alan we need a house that can fit christy and i and at that stage four kids of which two sleep together so you need one two three bedrooms i don't need a study anymore we don't need that we don't need a pool bigger than this table um let's go find that 
So when we found that, we're like, right, cut down. So sold the house and also got to the point going, well, what's the property market doing? There's a lot of money in this house. At that stage, it was about half a million rand, maybe maybe 700,000 or something in the house going, what I could do with that 700,000 in Hayfleet Software is far better one than this house is doing in Durbanville just sitting there. Yeah. So it's a bit of a betting on yourself, a bit like the poker chip kind of thing. It's like, if I had that 700 grand in the bank account, what would be the wise investment? Would I buy a house in Durbanville? No, I would put it in the business. So that was something that was taught to me the year before going, you should always look at your investments as if you're reinvesting them every say quarter. Yeah. So it's like right at that stage, you know, you've got a house here or maybe you've got a flat there. And it's like, well, if you could liquidate all of it now, whoop, all the money's in your bank account, would you go and buy shares in that company? Okay. And would you go, mm. would you do it again what you've now done? Or because all you're doing is you're just satisfying your past self and inheriting a decision of a three-year-old, three-year-old younger Alan. Yeah. And he was maybe a fucking idiot, right? So it's yeah. a bit like rechecking. And I was like, actually, right now the company needs the money more than we need this house. So let's put it on the market sell and put that in. And that was when we were about 30 people. So it helped us get to 50 for sure. Sure. Um, do you think your, your family's entrepreneurial background helped you through that period? Do you think that... Did you get advice from those around you going, it's not going to be, this This happens in the journey of business ownership. There are going to be years where you're eating lean and there are going to be years where... I think so, yeah. Um, not that I, I mean, my dad had passed away already in 2004, so it's not like I was, which would have been proper cool to say, okay, dad, so this is the deal, what do you think? I think my dad's appetite for risk was in the same category as mine, if not worse. So I he probably would have been like, yeah, sell the house and the dog, like in the yeah. business. You're like, bet on yourself, go, you know? So, but no, not that I had the, his advice or, or any real specific advice, but I think there was the entrepreneurial background is that is what is expected. So I don't remember having too much, clearly was a sacrifice, yes, because you're selling your home and you're kind of putting it in, and I don't know, but I don't remember it being a surprise. No, it was kind of like, this yeah. is what is needed, right? Yeah. Christy, you, what do we think? Yeah. Like, And of course, Christy's been amazing in going, well, yeah. you've done it this far. You've bet on black and then you've bet on red and then it's been red and then you've bet on black and then it's been black and now you're going to bet on black again. Like, I'm with you, just do it. Like, cool, where do you want to move? So it's wow. not... So that's been cool. Yeah, I guess if, if Christy's risk profile was... Less, less supportive and then I come home saying I think we need to sell the house and she's like what are you fucking crazy it's destabilizing it's, yeah, okay, it's now, risking things yeah, yeah. now you're risking your relationship because I'm like well I'm not actually asking you I'm telling you and I'm like now you're getting into like weird territory yeah, the relationships have ended for less yeah yeah. I mean so, I, but just genuinely family would have been I don't think that's a good idea Alan maybe you should just stop growing your company like yeah. maybe so there's, 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 there's always that there's always an opportunity cost when somebody goes well you don't have to go that road Alan. you know you could just keep the house keep the thing da-da-da, and just you're comfortable trench, right you're trench okay. four people yeah. like and you'll be fine yeah you know? so on, yeah so for all intents and purposes it sounds like you kind of just gave up and sold your dream house um and in the then, hopes that the dream house will come back twofold it, threefold yeah, yeah. Like delay the gratification we'll yeah. get there later um and beyond that i heard a rumor and you can either speak or not speak to it um and I heard it a while ago that you were paying yourself a salary less than what some of the top senior devs were getting. And 
It's not like, okay, we're paying senior devs 300k a month, so Alan's paying himself 295. It's like, okay, cool, this is his way out in terms of that. Yeah, just to be clear, we pay market-related salaries. Yeah, we, we, we pay market-related salaries and not pay fairly going, okay, so we value seniors at this much and we value marketing directors at 500k a month or something like that, you no, know? No, sure. Um, yes, there would have been times when... Uh, devs that we've hired would have earned more than me um i'm just trying to think how often it's happened i've tried i've tried uh i don't think it's been massively out okay probably what's what's fair to say in terms of what's on the pay slip yes legitimately like sometimes physically what my pay salary would be less than some others um not for a massive amount of time, because obviously from a personal perspective, I obviously need to earn as well. And the amount of uh, amount that I can earn are based on what kind of is possible. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's definitely been some months where a new person joins like, well, okay, so that's what we pay lead dev now. And we're like, okay, cool. So, so let's roll with it. And then I'll maybe catch up in three months and I'll try to equalize. But it's, I've tried quite hard for that not to happen because that is an indication that the business is unhealthy, right? Because yeah. it means it can't afford to pay its MD sufficiently. So it's cool to do in short in short stints and sometimes it's necessary because like, actually, what do I need? I need that. Okay. And then a new person comes in like, whoa, okay, so that's what's market. Okay, cool. But I've normally tried to rectify that within a couple of months because it's, um, you always sort of have to follow the principle of, well, if I've been, if I was taken out, and a new company had to hire a new MD. What would that new MD require? Yeah. And then you go, well, the new MD is probably going to require an MD salary. So, Alan, you better pay yourself an MD salary, right? But what's more more likely what happens is, so I'll then go, okay, cool. I'm going to adjust my pay slip and, and we need to make the business mature to the point. So it might be then indicate, well, why, why can't I pay myself that? And so, well, there's cash flow issues. Why is it cash flow issues? Okay, that's, there's a reason for that because you're growing or we new office or whatever. Yeah. But if you actually see, well, hold on, you can't pay the MD salary because your business is not sustainable. Okay, that's another problem, right? So then I would normally work on, okay, it's because our billing quotient is not high enough. There's too many people on the bench or, okay, yeah. we need to fix that in order for the, for the business to pay an MD salary because mm. that otherwise you're not healthy, right? Yeah. What's more likely happen, maybe the rumor that you hear is what will often happen is my pay, my pay slip might say X, but because of cash flow issues, X is not available on the 25th of the month. So I'll just get paid on the second of yeah. the next month. So, but it's still technically I'm being paid. It's just not at the same time as you. I know it's a quite a on the nose question, but it's more me leading towards that. So in the shitty times, back in the day you decided to rather get yourself another job so that you could keep the company going instead yeah. of being like okay sorry guys you have to go so i can sustain myself yeah and then you know a couple of years ago you go okay i'm gonna get rid of my dream house in another tougher time and then when times are good you're still not going okay well times are good so i can pay myself whatever the fuck i want and just be like oh yay i've got all this extra cash you're still keeping that yeah generally humbleness uh, to it yeah and look it, it um now that I'm part of the entrepreneurs group, is actually quite common what you're saying. So there'll be often guys in the group where the, where the, the entrepreneur is legitimately earning 30% less than their higher earning resource. Wow. And it's part of 
what's necessary to bootstrap and get it out the ground, right? So you only take what is required. If you don't need more, you don't take more because it's better in the business, right? And and in reality, it's it's kind of, yes, in some ways it's kind of noble and it's kind of, you're taking one for the team. But if you kind of unpack it a bit, it's just betting on yourself, right? Yes, I could pay. Yes, I could pay it. Short term. But I'm just going to land up putting it right back in, right? Because if you think of investment like 101, well, what growth has this company had versus what growth do I get in my APSA call account, right? It's way better in the business because it helps us you're going to spend that money on flight to London to unlock a new client, which unlocks it. So that extra 30K, which pays for a flight, is better paid on a flight than sitting in my bank account earning interest. So yes, there's a nobility to not taking but actually if you strategize on what the money's being used for it is actually in pursuit of something delayed gratification you know what I mean? you're just investing yeah. in something yeah like yeah. you would invest in getting a 10 percent return on the stock exchange you're just right. investing it in to get a 40 percent return yeah in three years from now so that's kind of the way i see it right but um so never want to just take the compliment but yeah no. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry Holly. Yeah. let's talk let's talk about buyer's remorse for a second right okay so I buy a car, okay, and I love this car. This car is the greatest car I've had since my last car, okay, <laughs> and and one day the the clutch fails and it was like, oh my gosh, you never bought this damn car. This and and every time something goes wrong, it's like, oh, you never bought this damn car. Have you had moments like that with running a business where you go, what is what is that thing that 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 sort of goes? Maybe I should just maybe I should just cash it in. Maybe I should just um, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. It's fuck not it, it's I'm not out. worth this. Yeah. Um. Maybe. Maybe twice. Probably two big ones. So like early 2014. So this is like before I got onto the vision of what we're doing. Four people like oh, cash flow issues. Take another loan. Like okay, clearly I'm not good at this fuck it i'm going back to the uk and i did get tight at one stage just before we started working with big Inja, it got real bad like every card i had maxed every every overdraft we had maxed do you know how much that total was uh at one stage when i did the maths i think all of the pieces in different accounts and different cards was probably and pieces that i hadn't paid sars at the time all in 2.8 million rand or so going okay wow. clearly i'm a bad entrepreneur this shit so <laughs> fuck it i'm out and going all right i'm gonna go back to the uk because we didn't move down and things were working it was about nine months mm-hmm. after we moved down and i was like i'm gonna go back to the uk i'm going to have to retrench the uk guys and i'm going to have to take back my job those jobs that i had delegated to them over the time and i'll get back to earning pounds and then i'll fly the kids over to england again and we'll get back um and then big into camera uh, which changed everything. It was amazing. It uh, boosted us, and yeah, kept kept the lights on, kept going. Um, then, I'm trying to think the other time. It was a time maybe during twenty. Can't remember. I think it was about a year after that. Again, just curveball, like massive curveball from Tesco. And like okay yeah this is actually just not worth it like but it was it was probably more not not so much out of frustration of the thing or the curveball but it, it's more of a low confidence and going, a, low, a low point yeah. yeah and it's i'm clearly not cut out for this i'm 
clear and again it's because you have the wrong model right uh, yes i was clearly not cut out for doing product development in that shape in that way yeah um when i then got on to actually what the why is what it is that i'm good at in the vision um our, our, our current of bring talent together advance the industry and be truly collaborative those are things that is i can relate to and i can sell and i can uh, mm. since then and vroop, and the growth that's happened i don't think i've had a ah oh, fuck it let's just like burn it Good, nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As employees, yeah, it's, it's more we're glad. That's more like I was asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more, it's more fun than frustrating. And if I okay. intellectualize it, I would just go, well, um, okay. So what would I do? Like, if you actually play the thought experiment of, okay. yeah. So the effort of going through everything and actually trying to sell the business now. Okay, now you sell the business. Um, now nah, got money in the bank. Okay, so what am I going to do? I'm going to want to build a team of talented people around me. Yeah. And I'm going to want to do some cool shit. Sort of like the fisherman's analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and I'm, I might go, anyway, it's been great, again, in that whole investment 101, right? If you could liquidate everything, if you could liquidate your house, would you buy that house again? And I got to know, I put it in the business. So you, you meant to use the same logic even with your business and go, mm. if you could liquidate this business tomorrow, zip. Would you, build Would you buy again? this business again? Well, let's say remove me from it and I've got the exact amount of money that this company's worth and this yeah. dude is selling. Would I buy this business from that dude for that price? And it's effectively what I'm doing every time I come back in on a Monday, right? Every time I'm back yeah. on a Monday, you are technically, it's as if you've liquidated and you've bought it back. You've liquidated and you've bought it back. And would I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I would want a mammoth to go and yeah. fuck shit up with, mm. right? And I now I have that as opposed to yeah. you know, sell it, I have yeah. to start all over again. Sure, yeah. I might have not like nice some zeros in my bank account, but I'm gonna go and hire and I'm gonna hire you guys. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then and, and then but I have it now. So like why, why so risk dismantling it all the Ferrari yeah. just to build a Ferrari again? I'll just be like, okay. But anyway, it's a good thought experiment that this actually this entrepreneur group has helped me with is cool. If you could dismantle and sell, would you buy it back? Would you buy would you buy it back from your twin, right? If it mm. is you. And if you answer no, okay, then you've got some stuff to think about. Mm-hmm. Change the shit that you would do if you bought the company from the other dude. And you might go, well, I'd fire that oak and I'd change that and I'd close that division and I'd fuck that up. Yeah. Cool. Well, then that's your strategy, right? Because if you mm-hmm. were to buy it again, now if you don't have the choice because I can't just liquidate and rebuy. Yeah. But there's your there's your goal. What right? would you do? Yeah. 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 Okay, so you haven't you haven't experienced this yet, but I've recently been on a trip with Alan to the UK to go and visit some clients over there. Okay, and we've had a couple of evenings where we've we've gone out and we've had some dinner and a few drinks and and, and things have things have progressed. Keep rubbing it in. Uh, <laughs> it feels like it's going to go in a dirty direction. It's not. That's a drink. You got loose one night. <laughs> okay, so what I'm what I'm alluding to is that Alan is quite the instigator when it comes to drinking. Okay, you say that as he takes a sip of his Savannah, yeah, his Savannah Light. <laughs> Let's be, let's be real. Uh, he's not the drinker. He's the instigator, right? Okay. Sometimes I'm the drinker. A little, yeah, there's been moments. Yeah. So recently, your 40th birthday, Alan's the one walking around the entire place handing out shooters. Were you there that evening? No. So Alan's walking around with these pallets, these shooter pallets, basically. It's, I think it holds six shooters each or eight shooters each. Yeah, 10. 
10, ten at a time. It was, it was ten his. at a time. And it's, it wasn't the bars, it was his. <laughs> it's, it's not just for the party, right? So there's maybe 10 or 12 of us that were at this 40th birthday party. And it's all, all everyone from the company was invited and family and friends and that. And we had a whole, Alan organized a whole section there for, for us. Nah, fuck the people that's in there. I'm going to go hand out shooters to the whole club. So Alan's walking around. <laughs> You probably did this about five or six <laughs> times, so like 60 well, I, shooters, I, yeah, handing and out complete strangers. And enlisted some help. We needed some extra hands to carry the paddle. Yeah, ended up this whole, like we had we had a section that was cornered off that we were going we to do our own thing over there. And turned it, out that, it turned out the whole evening was just this whole venue turned out to be the party, right? So what else do you do in your spare time? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is part of my... Um, problem and maybe it's related is that I've always struggled with hobbies um, and it's something that I think is part of my own personal challenge in that uh, I don't have a goal for a kayaking or a thing that, that I do that takes up time I think we just had kids quite early and so a lot of free time lands up being family and so I think in these times when on the rare occasions where actually like the 22 year old Alan can return to being a student right because I mean if yeah. I, if I kind of intellectualize it I went from being second in my high school to being like this university guy to finishing varsity to winning a jam and then going to London and like doing this thing I've never really had the student crazy gap year yeah. kind of stuff so I think there's definitely like a rebellion element in it and that's currently how I justify it which then comes out in these random events where I'm like mm. right now's the time to cut that. Okay. I'm 22 right so it's like totally acceptable and like i'm kind of catching up on a bit of that so yeah it probably looks like a midlife crisis but it's in in a way it kind of is because it's kind of catching up <laughs> yeah. but in terms of what i do outside um which anyway which is why i love the london trips as well because it's a it's a small group of us and it can be london and i get to kind of see london through your guys sort of fresh eyes and then yeah it turns into nice restaurants and drinking and yeah and kind of doing the stuff that i probably wished i had done when i was yeah 27 and 24 in london when i was there but i kind of never really did because i was just pushing and working yeah. you know um, but no at the moment i i run a bit i don't have enough hobbies it's mostly just kids so at the moment i prioritize kids a lot can, and can when i test, I've got one. when uh, i'm <laughs> and when i land up actually spending any free time i am actually listening to podcasts listening to autobiographical kind of developmenty kind of stuff some business development some personal development stuff or you or like real downtime like youtube video stuff mm. like i'm really kind of like zoned i find i'm drawn to like creative weird shit like advanced glass blowing <laughs> or guys sculpting shit with ice yeah. and there was a time when I used to sketch and draw a lot. Mm. There was a time when I was a lot better at it. And I think there's a definitely a creative element that I wish that I had the time to get back to. And also watch quite a lot of um, cooking kind of stuff. Mm. So I think there's definitely a creative element that I'm either not getting in my business and personal yeah. life yeah. that I'm waiting for. And it's definitely delayed gratification that I'm waiting for that time where I can actually go and cook. And there's, yeah. there's like set of recipes that i want to try both in baking and cooking that is a creative part of me that i'm like i'm keen because i'm drawn to that on youtube and i'm and i i want to do it but then i get home and it's kids and it's built and yeah. i'm like i'll get so you live vicariously for a while yeah yeah so i think that touches on a 
a general theme I found a lot with software developers or people, or technical professionals in software, right? Mm. There, there is a lot of create creative hobbies going on. Right? Like if I speak for myself, as well as a couple of that are people that I've known, you, you, you do, you do tend to be drawn to making things, yeah. to, to kind of having that as an outlet. It's an interesting. I think it's probably an interesting um, psychology study on software professionals because. Um, Complicated software development is all about creativity. Totally. And I can see where the correlation could be. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any official studies, but it'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. Um, no, and it wouldn't surprise me. I think it, it's far more creative than people give it credit to. And I think, yeah, like what's sort of on our website and our profile that goes out to our clients is, speaks to that. It's complicated software development is not like laying bricks and putting on plaster and then painting yeah. the wall. It's more like making a music video or making some mm. period making Schindler's List, right? That is about costume designers and set designers and scripts and directors and... Mm. Um, a lot of things have to fall into place. Everybody yeah. together. It's, it's like, actually, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Like, if you see the rehearsal of a theater production, we got to see a, a rehearsal of a theater, um, this production in uh, Artscape, and you see the rehearsal, then you see the overlays between, oh, that didn't really work, and it's the stage choreography and the dance and the orchestra and that, um, the whole, and the... the, the conductors not mm. timed with that mm. and it's like okay hold on guys I want to change things around and it's a collaborative very creative thing it's not one dude outsourcing something to some other person that passes it back again in some other country with you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's like together yeah yeah. so to go back to maybe a bit more of a serious topic the uh, you obviously have very good business your, your approach to business and your mindset and whether you've been very lucky or it's been genetics and it's been passed down to you you've made <laughs> the right decisions at the right time at least from your perspective now as as, as kind of you stand as Hayfelly stands okay. um, so if you were to give maybe one nugget of advice that's not super specific to I just had a in like a gut instinct to make this decision at this time to someone that's wanting to start their own business or sees themselves starting their own business what do you think that would be yeah, something that maybe you you hadn't received that you wish you had yeah <laughs> um pay sales on time <laughs> <laughs> good one i mean yeah one. yeah <laughs> yeah be mindful of tax from the beginning um let me think um be uh be prepared to uh, delay gratification. Like if you if you struggle with that or are quite impulsive, then it won't work. It's almost like, yeah. My view is delayed gratification is necessary, um, and to have a always be in check of your optimism versus your risk profile so if your uh, optimism is always high but the outcome never goes according to another job your optimism is affecting your prediction that you the x is going to happen and y is going to happen and then z is going to happen okay and then X never happens and Y doesn't happen and Z doesn't happen. Yeah. Then your predictive quality is shit and you are over optimistic. 
then you are and if you don't rectify that you will con- continually be this over optimistic it's a bit like how people get on x factor and think that they can sing but they can't sing mm. because <laughs> they have a false sense of their own capabilities and nobody's reset them and often often often, often with entrepreneurs no one is there to reset you you just open mm. your own mission and your yeah. friends are saying great business idea and they actually don't know so you you do are relying on your your own sense of optimism and your own sense of whether something can work or not and a lot of opportunities are blind blind to it yeah yeah and i would say what i would do differently is i would get a partner sooner so i would not have i also lived with the myth of an entrepreneur does everything right the value of the entrepreneurs you should be uh, law commerce finance marketing tech and code and this and get to market yeah. and, and 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 should be you should be the plug that fits in every socket yeah and you should be able to do everything and you are the go-to default and it's only when you need that thing then you get someone more specialist than you so you should be able to do it all and this myth that you're going to be some billionaire and you're still going to own like 94% of your company and uh, that's how you did it. It's like, no, it's not like that at all. You are highly unlikely to actually be able to fit into more sockets than like three. In fact, even if you're fucking good, you may be just good at two things out of the nine. Just find the other seven people earlier, share the vision earlier and go earlier. It's a, it's a myth thinking that the entrepreneur yeah. has to be the the cornerstone and like carry all of it yeah. just find the pieces of the puzzle that are missing and fucking partner and do it right um, so if we've got any hope of anybody actually listening to this we probably have to wrap up pretty soon okay. but I think I think all of this conversation <laughs> has led to the the needle point question here right and for me that question is what image are we going to put as the title of this podcast <laughs> that's going to go up on Spotify so, you're going to ask about the frosted tips. So there's an image floating around of uh, Alan's guy for Yuri phase. Fuck you guys. Yeah. Maybe there's a backstory there. Maybe there isn't. Feel free to jump in if you feel like you want to share here. But also, we'll just continue to that's provide our own reasons why this happened. Yeah, no, it's safe. Yeah, we can. We can. Yeah, we could create some narration around that as the description for this podcast. But that's definitely going to be. I think we should all agree now that that's going to be <laughs> no, the that's podcast image. <laughs> Uh, it's definitely what's going to be yeah, yeah, no, we, we got this uh, so is there a backstory there feel free to didn't, well you know. the peroxide my peroxide phase fuck how long did it last first off probably about a year oh wow okay it, <laughs> it wasn't maybe, maybe so you saw yourself in the mirror is that a professional at some job? point oh yeah I'd put, <laughs> hey, hey this is this is a different time right this so was the Sum 41 Blink 182 like, that was uh Final year varsity, so that's like 2001. Okay, so this is this was like proper mid 2000s, right? It's peak. Of it's, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's peak proper of, 40s. Yeah, I was like well on trend, <laughs> but 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 no, probably not. I was probably still like two years later than trend. I actually don't. <laughs> I, do, I don't actually know what the like how that came about, but I. I'd love to know the thought process. I think frosted tips are pretty cool. I actually have no idea how it I got from yeah okay that'll be cool. I think what happened was I at one stage I was staying in digs yeah because I've been in third year so I was staying in digs with about four or five guys so I had the hair clippers and everybody wanted to save money on cutting hair so I 
land up getting a set of clippers and I'd cut my own hair in the mirror and I got relatively good at cutting my own hair just like looking at the mirror and doing it backwards and save yourself like 200 bucks or whatever 100 okay. bucks a haircut so then a new sort of spread around the, my decks that okay Alan's got a set of clippers with all the like the gradings mm. thing and I'm being a fucking perfectionist like my hair was like professional grade yeah. and I'm doing it with like one hand behind my back and so now I start doing my other mate's hair in the bathroom and the other mate and then the other. so I'm basically I'm cutting out the hair for our entire dicks <laughs> like fucking once a month so actually that was your first job <laughs> that's not, the fallback well, not that I was paid for any of this shit but then at one stage yeah shit we'd have like bras at our digs and it would just turn into our fucking cutting like nine people just shaving around doing grading and like I actually was relatively good at it right? it's like a perfectionist thing and there's like it's, it's, totally it's a hobby yeah. yeah yeah. and then I think one other guy he peroxided his hair so then he said okay well dude okay, you can do the thing and then I can peroxide I said well I don't know how to peroxide he's like okay and he showed me he did the, the, the blue paste kind of thing and then did his hair yeah. and I was like fuck okay cool pretty easy up to right and I was like fine okay so like let's, yeah. let's attempt this thing and then yeah I think I maybe did it I think I probably only did it like three times, but I did it full white right, and right. then it would grow out and then the picture of the tips was a one of the great icons. Yeah. Thank God that exists. Let me just say it's it's yeah, pure class. Um, I'm so glad Christy stuck around. Um, <laughs> well, I met, Christy, I met Christy in that phase. Okay, so, so yeah, we so. definitely know she has a type. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> She's just waiting for when the punk scene comes back. Yeah. But, but it, was, it was quite funny because we, we met on the beach during that same year and... Um, so obviously she's a cousin of a good friend of mine and and she met us on the beach and we were all uh, about three you like frosted and we're playing beach ball and we were now these oh, these UCT so guys great. playing frisbee and you know like so yeah. we were like these third year fourth year students meanwhile we were all business science computer science yeah. or, or uh, business science IS or finance or mm. there's one dude from actuary one dude was in med school so mm. it was actually quite a like a Educated smart group. group right we just <laughs> didn't have good taste in <laughs> and like obviously then Christy then met us so anyway it was interesting like months later came out Christy thought we were like the dregs of UCT like that her cousin <laughs> is basically dating all of these beach bums that are frosted hair playing beach ball fucking yeah, proper frisbee bros. so like I must be the dropout of third year that's probably tried I'm like this is my third degree attempt or whatever so anyway I wasn't earning points big time and then mm. later obviously came out and Christy was she, she was studying first year she was going to go into a, mm. a psychology degree and so she almost like had this bias across all of us that we were all these like beach rats and then later one by one is like ah oh, med school actuary med school yeah and it's just like ah oh, interesting yeah yeah and i was in that group yeah All right, so i think i think we i think we can call this <laughs> wrap a bow on this now <laughs> so in terms of where we go from here on this podcast we don't know yet okay so i think we'll try some some specific topics, right? So now we've got a bit of background here for the software. Let's mm. let's dive into some of the, the deeper challenges here and see mm. if we can peel back a few more layers of this onion and kind of yeah. get to the crux of what it is that we do. A lot of industry stuff came up today that we can definitely yeah, expand there's, on. There's so much here that yeah. is a podcast on its own. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to see if we can explore bringing a few people in, experts that you might have dealt with, people that you, yeah. you know. And there's some cool stuff I'm learning from this new group as well. Might be quite nice as a forum to relay and feed that in because it's it's an easy passive way to do it and anybody's interested can then pick it up for an hour yeah that could also be quite cool yeah I think so okay cool thanks very much Alan thanks Harley thank you guys uh, that was fun yeah I think there's not too much editing in here
Cool. Nearly two hours. All done. Is that two Can hours? You guys hear me?